So hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelly Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we welcome a very good friend of the show, Tom South. Tom is the Chief Information Officer at Northern Trust. Tom has been with Northern Trust for over 19 years, where he's held numerous technology leadership positions across the organization. He brings deep and diverse experience to the position, ranging from IT strategy and systems reliability to asset and wealth management technologies. Tom graduated with a bachelor's degree in computer science from Northern Illinois University, and he's also on the advisory board for the Make-A-Wish Foundation of Illinois. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the show. Welcome, Tom. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. Tom, if you don't mind, can you share with our listeners, for those who are not aware, uh, what is Northern Trust and who are your customers? Well, Northern Trust is a Chicago-based bank, one of the few Chicago-based banks remaining of any substantial size. It's over 130 years old. And uh, we primarily started out, our legacy is in servicing uh, high net worth individuals and families in pretty complex financial needs. Uh, and we've also, over over the time the banks existed, grew into a global custodian with over $10 trillion in assets under custody and a servicer to corporations, sovereign wealth funds, and individuals the world over. That's awesome. I, I Obviously, Northern Trust is an icon in, in you know the Chicago financial industry globally as well. But just from Chicago's standpoint, it's, it's clearly an icon as one of those really well-established, well-run, well-respected businesses in, in downtown. How long has Northern Trust been operating? Uh, so it was uh, founded in 1889, so it's been around for a while. Um, it survived some pretty significant financial crises in there. Um, and, I, you know, it's, it's funny, Patrick, you mentioned that one of the one of the points of pride for me in, in working for Northern Trust is, is not the wonderful business success story, which it is a great success story, but the family that founded Northern Trust, the Smith family, had a philanthropic uh, view of its mission from the beginning, at least part of the mission. And uh, for me, having been, I'm from Chicago and lived here most of my life, although I've done some stints elsewhere, I love when I go to a museum in the city and I look at the board members, there usually there's some, some kind of information about the board or the founders of the institution, whether it be the Museum of Science and Industry or the Field Museum, and you see the participation of executives from the company, the founding family, and and the corporation itself. I think the, the work that we do in the community to me is almost as big a bigger point of pride um, is the success of the company overall. I do see that as, you know, understanding the history of Chicago and how it's grown and the collaboration between the city and, you know, the philanthropic nature of a lot of those founding families, right? When you think about like how the city grew in the late 1800s and into the early 1900s and and how much it was a collaboration with those types of you know high wealth people i and again i i'm mostly from chicago spent most of my life here and i always wonder is this standard is this normal right where you look at so much history of of the city growing through those types of you know like the the culture why we have such great cultural icons museums right those types of things um it does seem like we have a very unique heritage or pedigree. I like to think so. I think the sort of an unusual story to Chicago that, you know, we kind of rebuilt in the late 1800s on. And uh, I would say that some of those families whose names 
around some of those buildings are, were some of the early clients of the bank. And, and clearly there was a collective of folks, and I'm proud to say the founders of our firm were part of that, that had a vision for the city. And, uh, and we all reaped the benefits of some of those great institutions they developed, uh, you know, last century or so. It seems that organizations that have been around for that long can only survive if they're truly innovative, if they're, you know, willing to kind of change their business model. How do you think Northern Trust has adapted through the years? Well, Northern Trust certainly has a, a reputation as a relatively conservatively run um, um, financial institution. And that's actually served us well in a lot of ways. The confidence of clients, particularly in, in difficult economic times, often clients show up at our door looking for that sort of conservative and, and sort of safety mindset. But the reality is in the industry, we're in financial services and mass consolidation in the industry the last 20 or 30 years you don't survive unless you you grow and you innovate. And so there's a pretty good, quiet, but but long-term innovation story at Northern Trust. Um, you know, some of it's the business model and evolving from that servicer to, to high net worth uh, individuals and families into the global custody business as the ERISA laws evolved in the 70s and then into the fund servicing businesses and a number of others that we're in today. And we've kept the, what I think has really been wonderful is the history of the, of the firm is has been to keep the sort of culture and the, and the mission alive, but grow from a Chicago-based bank servicing families here to a global financial institution um, in all kinds of different businesses, but with that same core culture in place. And on the technology side, where my expertise is, is deepest, there is a, a really good innovation story, you know, starting with, you know, probably in the 60s, some of the technology that Northern was acquiring on the check clearing side. I mean, these are things we, we aren't as big a part of the business today, but they were pretty important components of our business then. And the, and the technology they brought in, there was only a few banks using at the time. And, and you know, in the 70s, they started retooling of some of the platforms to go from personal trust usage to global custody usage. Um, the list sort of goes on in the, in the 2000s. We innovated around our platforms to retool them to service asset managers, where we'd usually been servicing asset owners. So we've continued to, you know, I think it's really been driven, quite frankly, by really smart um, business people who saw opportunities in the marketplace. But the IT organization, long before my tenure there, was able to respond um, by building and deploying solutions to support those opportunities. And I, I often tell this to our our, uh, our incoming interns who I often uh, do a session with. You know, a lot of times Northern Trust in the finals of whatever, you know, sales, whatever business uh, side it's in, most of the time there's one of the two other or three other finalists is a firm much larger than ours. And you don't survive against much larger competitors without a, a technological innovation over the last 20 years or so. That's certainly true. And we've done our, we've, we've held our own and, been, and often punched above our weight from that perspective. I say that with all humility. Most of that wasn't certainly under my tenure, but there's been some brilliant leaders um, and recognized, um, you know, CIO uh, experts in the Chicago region, for sure, that drove that, that strategy for the business on the tech side. And so been a real competitive edge. Over, over the length of time I've been at the company and longer than that. And I think it's a, one of, although not the key reason, one of the key reasons we've continued to grow ir irrespective of tough times or, or boom times. And obviously, you know, your background where you're going with uh, innovation first and then really having to, you know, how is Northern Trust going to provide that high quality, high touch experience, right? That, that's been the foundation and the touchstone of its success. You know, you look at other elements of the financial services industry and, and they're going, uh, uh, you know, in various directions, but they're all understanding that they have to reinvent themselves on, on a little bit more of a digital platform. What's your read um, 
from that standpoint? Where do you see the financial services industry? What are some of the big impacts that we're going to see in the in the coming 12, 18 months? Well, I wish I had a crystal ball to be really <laughs> accurate about that, right? Um, I think every financial firm is is using technology as a way to, to further their growth and efficiency goals both. I think from our perspective, um, if you take our, our, our kind of core heritage business, the, the wealth management business, there are more competitors in that space than there have ever been, uh, small and large. It's clearly an attractive business to be in in a growing market. But uh, if you've looked where, where technology has really impacted it, there's two really big things at play. At the broader side of the market, you know, it was robo-advisors five or six years ago were the key play. And I think that's evolved some and to become much more of a digitized set of services. Um, I think robo sort of implied there weren't people involved. And we didn't believe that was a, a supported our, our business model because quite candidly, the, the brilliant people in our wealth management business are a big part of that value proposition. But over an overlay of digital services um, to be complementary to the to the advisor, I think is probably the best answer for us and probably firms like us. Um, we, you know, we, we're focused on a, we're not focused on being a servicer to 20 million um, retail banking clients. It's a, it's a business, it's just not a business we're necessarily in. So in the high net worth advice, which is a very high touch service business for us, um, we're looking for you know digital capability to be complementary to our advisor and and also provide convenience to our clients. And that's a, that's been a tricky balance to strike for for high net worth uh, firms. So we're we've done some things in that space. We certainly have a fair amount of um, of robust plans on digitalization of that part of our business. I think if you look at the the kind of global financial services for corporations and institutional investors, it's sort of a different story. The technology has often become part of the product offering. And there, those clients are much more attuned to how you know, the sausage gets made inside of our shop and they'll ask questions about our platforms and our development environment and our data exchange capabilities and security being a big one. Uh, so I think that you know, on both sides, the reality is um, we continue to see the biggest growth in our industry go to those most tech-savvy firms. And we aim to continue to be one of those growing firms. And we have been. We've managed to continue to be that. So um, clearly, our the arrow's up in terms of our investment in, in digital capability and technology, but but not with the goal of distancing our clients from us, but with the goal of bringing them closer together. And that's a, that's a difference. If you remember the early days of internet technology, which is when I started building client-facing tools, a lot of banks were building technology to keep you from seeing a teller, to keep you from seeing a banker. Um, I know there was an efficiency to that. We simply never had that approach and, and there wasn't enough efficiency really for that to be valid for us anyway. But we're trying to find a way for the technology to be a collaboration point with our advisor rather than a place that you go instead of talking to an advisor. So it's a fine line and it's subtle in some ways, but uh, we don't think anybody in the industry has quite figured it all out in detail. And we think we've we've got, uh, because of the, the you know century plus focus on high touch service, we think if anybody's gonna gonna nail it, it'll be us. And um, just from a, a talent perspective, I know you're doing a lot to to win, let's call it the war on talent. And the market is so saturated right now with great people, which sometimes makes it even more difficult, right, uh, to really find out who's going to be the best talent for your culture, for your team, and for what your future needs are. So curious what you're doing in that space. Well, that's isn't that the great irony of, of uh, technology is the real key to technology is the people. Because none of the, the best ideas, the best blueprint um, doesn't go very far without the right people to implement that. And quite candidly, with the, 
the emergence of, of cloud technology and the pretty substantial step up in cyber threats, you know, talent is more important than ever in, in our business. And increasingly, we're starting to find financial firms um, trying to having to compete with some of the Silicon Valley firms in a way that maybe wasn't the case five or six years ago. Um, but it's become an attractive career alternative for folks that came out of the, those fintech firms. And, and obviously, that kind of talent is quite attractive to, to financial firms as well. And we've been in a situation where our the bulk of our IT footprint was in Chicago and has been for, for always, I guess, in this case. Uh, but the competition in Chicago for talent has really gone up, particularly downtown where we're located. You've had a number of large companies move in from out of state or move from the suburbs downtown. So we've seen some great competition. And and uh, so one of the things that we've been doing is we've been sort of expanding our footprint, right? We think just simply being Chicago's, while there's great talent, by the way, and we've been thrilled with the outcomes we've been able to generate, we're, we're certainly expanding our footprint to other parts of the U.S. And, and wherever our clients are. And so I think the interesting trend on the talent side for me, though, is, and, and it was, we're having this, this conversation sort of in the midst of a unprecedented uh, health issue globally in the pandemic. Um, and you're starting to see, we, like, for example, we, we used to see the ability to work from home being a lure to potential prospects for our IT organization. And now we're in the midst where everyone's working from home. That's not much of a lure at this point. In fact, we're getting folks petitioning us to come back to the office. They've, they've had enough. They want to see somebody other than someone with their last same last name. And so, uh, <laughs> and so I'm sort of in that, that mindset myself. So I, I think the, I think, Talent matters, and what where our best success has been has not in being trying to out you know outdo compensation or outdo benefits. We certainly have a, a wonderful compensation and benefits uh, package, and always have. Um, I think it's really finding people that have mission alignment, uh, you know. And you can't talk about talent without talking about culture a little bit. To your point uh, about Shelley about fit, Northern Trust is an extremely mission driven company. You know, we've sort of got these principles, this service expertise, and integrity. Which I, you know, I've been, I've worked in consulting at firms that had a, a company crest and they had some wonderful keywords on there. Um, but these are lived at the company. It's one of the reasons I stuck there in my consulting career. I had moved around a lot and, and these are really embodied by the people here. And finding folks who want to be part of a mission driven organization with a very long history um, and a pretty deep culture, particularly around service, um, but also really expertise and integrity, a big part of that. People who want to be in that environment thrive. And it requires you to be sort of a high expertise, low ego sort of performers. And folks that come in with super high ego and, and high expertise struggle sometimes because it's a we, it's a very we first culture at the firm. And that fits me and it fits a lot, you know, it tends to be the kind of people that are attracted to us. And I think if you find that mission alignment with talent, we generally, you know, just like our just like our new business opportunities with talent opportunities, we tend to win out with them because they see that in the people they meet. And the demeanor of the of the folks that they encounter in the interview process, and and the sort of way we set goals and objectives. So, so I you know we we we're not going to try and be, you know, Google on on pure compensation. We're going to find a different value proposition to people, and we've been pretty successful on that front. Do you also see Tom like with obviously there's organizations not located in Chicago. Some of the other you know the larger tech firms out on the coast are obviously going to take that remote working and, and expand their territory of where they're going to be re- attracting talent. Is that something that Northern Trust is considering as well, that uh, hiring remote only you know, employees, is that an expansion that's on the agenda or something that you guys are open to? 
It's a good question. Um, this is one of those where the crystal ball would be quite helpful if I could tell what things were to look like a year from now, uh, but I can't. What I would say is in the current environment, we're, so we're in a growth mode in the IT organization. We're, we're this year likely to add a couple hundred people to the IT organization. That probably is the case next year. Um, we've probably developed an overabundance of dependency on, on third parties. And in terms of building differentiating solutions, we think our, our folks are probably a key to that. So we have been in a big hiring mode um, everywhere in the world. We've got positions everywhere, everywhere we do business just about of any size. And we've, so just as an example, I gave this update to our board recently, we've hired about 105 IT people approximately that have never been to our office yet. They started in the last five months that we've been mostly on, on this sort of lockdown globally. And we've found a way for them to become up and productive. So I think, and, and even before that, to be totally transparent, we have been hiring more and more folks that were going to primarily work out of their home office. And, and often it's it's Montana or it's North Carolina. These are lifestyle choices to some extent. And so we, I believe in the IT space, that was a trend that started before the pandemic and we've been accommodating on that front. But I do, I have a concern on the counterpoint to that. And I'm not an expert in uh in human capital, but we're keeping track of this because when I talk about a firm that has a mission-driven culture, part of it's gained by being around the other people that, are, that live it and embody it. And I wonder what, what corporate cultures look like, for better or for worse, in a disconnected model. And I think the realities of whenever we, we change you know, out of this particular mode, we will have more remote work staff than we've ever had before. And I think that error will go up. Mm-hmm. And I do, I do wonder though about the ability for us to convey that, that client-first mindset, that high-touch service mindset, that mission drive that has us have the lo- longer tenures than the norm, and greater commitment from our people in a lot of ways than the norm. And so I think that's a risk for us that we've got to be careful of, but uh, but also great, you know, great advertising for the culture of the firm. But I, I think, and we're not the only ones. I think the industry and all the industries are going to look at that. For sure. But but in this case, the answer is we were doing more remote work before the pandemic. We're doing a lot of it during this. And I think we'll do a lot after. And I don't quite know what the workforce will look like two years from now, but different than it looked two years ago, for sure. And I, I think you, when we talked before, uh, you, this is exactly one of those areas where there's going to be winners and losers. Right. Some people are going to learn and understand and make investments on how to create that culture through a, uh, you know, a remote first. Right. As opposed to the the absorption, the osmosis of the culture by being near each other, yeah. right? the immersion, right? The the smells, the feels of the day to day, and how do you actually reinforce? You know, I guess I just think reinforce your your culture, your values, your your mores in a distributed fashion where it isn't so uh, what you're picking up visibly from you know a, a three dimensional uh, experience, right? So. I think it does create an opportunity to actually improve many things of like things that just happened almost accidentally. And then if it's happening accidentally, is it really the best way to do it if it's just happenstance, right? If you're not being deliberate about that reinforcement structure, right? And so that's where I I think some of these opportunities to seize that of like the people that figure that out are going to be the winners in that story. But I, I agree. It's it's definitely uh, an unknown at this point, or maybe some people have figured it out and they just don't want to share it with us. And you know that's not very nice. I think <laughs> I think the the truism here is going to be that depending on serendipity, 
um, and happenstance in the offices to help to build those relationships and experiences that drive beliefs and behaviors, culture in its broadest form, I think is an overly optimistic view of how it's going to work going forward. And you're right, the firms that are purposeful and thoughtful about this will win went out here on the people side. And Patrick, as you and I discussed, that'll turn out to be true on the business side too. If you look at what the stress of the the remote kind of business models is, is creating, it's creating winners and losers. The firms that were most digitally enabled tend to be doing the best in these. And it doesn't matter what, it's not in just the financial services, it's in, in food services. If you had online ordering and delivery already as a part of your business model, you have fared a lot better in this scenario. So I think that there's a lot of dimensions upon which the stress of the current environment, like most crises, um, they drive um, you know winners and losers coming out of that. I think that's true. The financial crisis of of ten plus years ago is going all the way back to the the uh, Great Depression here in the U.S. and around the world and other other big uh, crises. So again, we're we're sort of in the middle of it. So I won't be naive enough or or have enough hubris to predict exactly how it plays out. Um, but in our our case, our first instinct is to embrace our clients and embrace our people. I can remember that our, our CEO at the time, 10, 11 years ago, during that crisis saying, take care of our clients, take care of each other. The business will survive. It survived terrible crises before. And while this isn't quite as, as dire as that in terms of the economic conditions, the same message has been what our company's been going, take care of our clients, take care of our people, um, and the rest will work itself out. And uh, But not by happenstance with forethought and purpose, and that's sort of what we're trying to drive on the digital side. Somebody I was speaking with earlier uh, today, the, the concept of your business model right now in crisis is to be a decent person, right? Just be a decent person, be a good member of, of the community, right? Look after your people, look after your customers, think about them first. Uh, it seems like that humble heroism of like, uh, you know, we're not going to try and save ourselves at the risk of losing our folks and then losing our customers, right? And it does get back to that, we're all in this together. And the, you know, the larger the community, the more likely you're going to, to survive the ups and downs. Yeah. Uh, but, you, you know, you talked about how different environments, right? And, uh, you know, we spoke about uh, a LinkedIn post that you loved, you know, with the image of a wrecking ball, right? And like, who in the organization is, you know, now that, Digital transformation is no longer a nice thing to talk about. It is a survival mechanism, right? So there were people that the, the starting gun has gone off. Some people had already started the race and they're doing very well, but the race is clearly not over by, by a far stretch. And so I, I think one concept that you brought up that I really love is like, who's really the change agent in your organization for these types of these transformations, these types of reinventions? innovations? Uh, is it the CEO? Is it the CTO? Is it COVID? So I, I think it's probably worth, I, I remember remember talking to you about this. It's probably worth just describing. I, and I, I, I didn't create this. It was somebody clever on, on LinkedIn. I saw this thing. It was just a great picture. A single picture told a really great story. And I actually used that, that image. I think I told you this with our board of directors is just to think about <laughs> what's kind of going on in this environment. But it had a picture of a boardroom and people sitting around and saying, our digital transformation strategy is going to be done in five years. And outside their window is this wrecking ball with COVID-19 written on it. And it was about to hit that boardroom. And I thought that was interesting and that they thought they could control, you know, this five-year window they were going to do all this work over when, when there was this wrecking ball of, of urgency, you know, and, and topical urgency coming at them. And there was a poll that was sort of in close proximity with that that I had conveyed to you, which said, 
you know, in your organization, who is the the key lead in, in digital transformation? It was like your CEO, your chief information officer, your your COO or COVID-19. And I thought that was a little, it was a little cheeky, but I thought it was a good, a good message of whatever you thought you were going to do over the next X number of years, cut it in half. You're going to want to do that faster. And we see that. I was on a, a forum. I think I told you I had a couple of uh, industry forums I was joining this week. And in the one that was uh, Gartner was hosting, I think it had of the participants, 75% of them responded that they were going to accelerate plans they had. So that was that. If you want to avoid the wrecking ball, you might want to start moving ahead faster in front of it. And um and one of the things, again, it's it's my own opinion. This represents no opinion, but my own. But if if you've in whatever business you're in, if if the if the COVID nineteen wrecking ball figuratively is your first wake up call into the fact that you've got to be transforming the way you develop, provide your services, interact with your customers, et cetera, you're probably pretty far behind. And there probably aren't a lot of firms that are like that. Um, there's a there's a you know um, survivor bias, right? Those firms that were too slow to that are probably already fallen off the map a little bit. Um, but I totally think that what you said is true. This race has by no means uh, been run completely. This is a marathon or an ultra marathon or whatever you would like to think of it as. Uh, and for us, you know, we had we we were investing certainly in, in digitalization of our business and services, but uh, we certainly have a new urgency around that given sort of the environment uh, and the expectation of our clients. And certainly we expect um, peers in our industry and many others to be doing the same thing. You know, it was going to create another another renewed demand for talent, for consulting services, for tech um, capability, et cetera. The thing we're most cautious about is we continue to want to explore and deploy new capability and new technologies to our clients. But one of the reasons you come to us, that safety my, mindset that I talked about a little while ago, it isn't just about market risk or things like that. It's about data protection, too. You know, one of the things about certainly in the, in the high net worth wealth management part of our business, privacy and data protection are key components of that business for our considerations for our clients. And they certainly it's one of the reasons they come to us. And so I think the way we, we've been trying to strike a balance here is to take advantage of new technologies, but be able to provide a high level of assurance to our clients that we're doing everything possible to protect their information and often it involves working with them to help help us help you. Don't write your password down. Don't give it out to all your family members. Don't send your you know information to and from us on Gmail with no secondary you know authentication things like that. A long list of those things. But but the the things that, that are tempering our our digitalization so far have been you know kind of safety of the data and the constraint of how fast our clients and our teams can adapt to new processes. But but we, we like a bunch of firms, are in that acceleration mode. So we like to think our boardroom, figuratively, is moving ahead of the wrecking ball faster than the wrecking ball is coming at us. And uh, But those that aren't are going to find um, that, that you know, you've heard that phrase, don't waste a good crisis. We don't like doing things under crisis mode. We'd like being a little more thoughtful than that. So we're trying to be exactly that. And Tom, I think Patrick was telling me earlier that uh, you're doing a lot on the people side in terms of some cross-training, maybe swapping out some of the infrastructure folks to work with AppDev. Uh, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I sure can. And again, I, I'll, I'll say this is a, it's an interesting idea, whether it turns out to be a good one or a bad one, you have to judge for that. But I gave this example back when we were chatting earlier. So when I came into this role, there was a lot of space between our, our application development teams and our infrastructure teams. And a lot of what I saw in the industry told me that was going to be a problem. There's a lot of focus around um, on-demand infrastructure and, and you know, kind of those kinds of 
rapid development deployment technologies. So one of the first things we did is we sort of transposed or transplanted some folks out of application development um, into the infrastructure organization and out of the infrastructure organization into our application development teams at, at a leadership level. This isn't at a low level. And we we're trying to bring some credible experiences and sometimes, you know, 20 years of, in one group or the other into that other group. And, and it definitely brought a new level of, of, of collaboration between those groups. And if you think about where agile, you know, high velocity delivery methodologies in general gone, that integration and collaboration is extremely important, extremely important at that to be successful. So the next wave of that that we were taking a hard look at is because in our shop, at least, has been successful. Um, it, it wasn't without some some pain up front, but now it's been it's been quite uh, quite successful, and we built a lot around that. So we've been considering a similar set of uh, transplanted transposition from IT in our business lines, right? So maybe see some of our key tech folks uh, go into the business to help run their digital you know digital product roadmaps and things like that, and vice versa. Bring some of those folks with deep domain expertise in wealth management or asset servicing or asset management into, into our, our tech organization too, to help us be much more context aware. Because as you know, the, the, mod, the model we moved away from was this, I'm gonna write requirements for six months, then I'm gonna hand them to you. You're gonna review them like they're a legal contract and redline it. And I mean, nobody thought that was productive. And so this idea of faster delivery cycles and, and more shorthand between the teams requires the business folks to be more tech savvy and our tech folks to be more business savvy. So in addition to the transposition of some of those folks, which I, I think we're gonna do some of in the next few months here, as, as we accelerate those plans, I also think we're, we're for the first time developing um, training, required training curriculums for our tech folks that have business line training. You know, we're not trying to make every person in our asset management tech group, uh, you know, a CFA, but we are encouraging them to start to spend some time learning the craft of their their internal customer. And we're trying to offer the similar complementary training on some of the tech concepts to, to some of our business folks so that our people in the business understand what's powerful about AI or are powerful about cloud computing and what that can mean in terms of product cycles and capability we can deliver to our clients. So I, when we talk about our acceleration, that's at least one of the key attributes of that that doesn't require us to buy a lot more tech or a lot more outside services. That's really more about the way we work. Not the only answer, but an answer we're certainly kind of double down on, it looks like. I have to think that's really attractive to your employees to have uh, those opportunities. Oh, I think, I think I, one of my most senior people came to me and said, yeah, he said, I, I've got three or four people already asking me whether there's opportunities like that. So I think there's a, I think it's exciting. I think anytime you start to cross-pollinate folks, um, I think you get a lot of excitement. Um, what I hope it really results in is a tighter working relationship and the ability to continue to, what I'll say is accelerate that shorthand between the teams. So we build things faster uh, and the cycles continue to compress. I mean, at the end of the day, that's if our clients get more capability faster, they win. If they win, our shareholders win. And that's obviously good for the firm. Mm-hmm. It's funny, internally, we use the term athletes a lot. We tend to hire people who are really skilled at many different things. Uh, so it sounds like a similar model. Yeah, it, it, but I'll tell you the truth. That's that's a brilliant observation. I, tech has been really more about specialization for a long time. And I think we've just started to use the sports analogy, draft the best player on the board at the time my draft pick comes up rather than the person who's best at this one thing. So I think we're finding that uh, the people who are becoming the most successful are um, becoming more generalized, particularly when it comes to business domain. And that's something I we just didn't, you know, 10 years ago, I would say people were really heads down on becoming an expert in Java or in, 
you know, this database technology or this cyber technology, understanding the business context is providing a lot of value for those folks. And so I think we're seeing a change. And, and I was excited this uh, late last year, 2019, our biggest business unit, our corporate institutional services unit, kicked off a training curriculum in which they included required training three business uh, or sorry, three technology concepts for all their business leaders. That was a big step forward. And, and Pete Cherowich, who runs that business, who's quite a prolific LinkedIn poster himself, is a huge believer, but he's become quite a tech-savvy leader and a huge believer in his leaders all becoming quite tech-savvy. So we're in that transformation already, whether we admit it or not, and it's a very exciting one. It does seem to me the uh, the breaking down of silos, right, the, the sharing, really the key ingredient to some of this transformation, which sounds, you know, almost counterintuitive, is empathy for other parts, right? Uh, really understanding what other people are faced with instead of I think is uh, uh, the book team of teams focus on, you know, every mm-hmm. other team sucks, right? Like really understanding, <laughs> you know, what it's like instead of like, oh, the sales guys, they just take off at noon to go golfing and not understand the rigors and, and discipline necessary to be exceptional in that role. Uh, it, it's the, it, you know, you started that conversation, you know, as this conversation began, you start out with the, the concept of people and, and some of the counterintuitive behaviors to successful digital transformation start and end with people. And um, a good friend uh, of mine uh, who was very successful at Allstate, part of his recruiting process was finding people who demonstrated a high level of empathy, not sympathy, but empathy, right? Being able to put themselves in other people's shoes. Specifically, like you mentioned, is, is these technologies are required to not just focus on technical solutions, but business outcomes. Can they you know, be empathetic to the customer, right? Are they really focused on driving value to to the user of their products, not just so much about the technical solution. So uh, it's really, you know, bring that whole full circle. I think it's it's really amazing. And considering you know, financial services, a cold doggy dog, you know, profit driven, you know, uh, watching I, I 2008, such an interesting time and some really great movies that came out of it. Uh, and just when you see some of the, the cultural norms that were on display during that time, it's, it's kind of frightening. And obviously, as technology is eating the world, uh, I, I am enthusiastic about the idea that uh, these types of concepts are, are really things that the CEOs want to talk about. Patrick, I, I think I, should, I feel like I want to mention that, you know, in our journey on this front, I couldn't agree more on the empathy side. Our journey on this, and, and it's no credit to me, it started before my time in this role, but the adoption of, of design thinking, and, and in particular, human-centered design, where there's a person at the center of a lot of what you do, really changed the way a lot of our folks started to think about the solutions they developed. And rather than being from the tech out, they came from the people in. And uh, and that's just an exciting evolution for us. We're not, the journey's not done either. But uh, design thinking broadly and human-centered design and a lot of those client-facing components we build, um, it it almost, well, not forces the empathy, but certainly the people with greater empathy tend to be much more successful participants in that process. And I, th- I see that in the firms whom I work with in my life. You can see the design thinking permeating their products and services too. And so it's the kind of firms I want to work with and I want to work at. And, and that's been a big part of our journey. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you sharing that with us. It's been, it, I, th- I think our listeners are going to get a ton of value out of the idea that like really the, in this new world that we're all kind of sh- pushing off from the, the shore on, uh, it is how do we take technology to serve customers? right? How are we going to leverage digital platforms? How are we going to take those, but 
Do we know our customers? Do our, do our employees know our customers? They understand our value proposition to them. What differentiates us? I think those are kind of those critical components. If everybody in the business knows exactly, you know, and again, the thing, what sounds consistent to me is why Northern Trust has survived where others have not. Why Northern Trust hasn't just survived, but thrived and grown and seen as a global leader is because your customers and your people come first. And then how are you using technology to, to augment and do that even faster? It seems to be uh, the message that I'm getting out of, out of the journey and how far you've come so far. Well said. I should be I should be as succinct and articulate as that on it, but that's exactly right. <laughs> It'd be a short episode. Very <laughs> short. You know, but I, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're a super busy person and I really appreciate you sharing your experiences. It's really awesome stuff. Yeah. Thank you, Tom. And well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right. We also want to thank our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they are published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.